Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, Dr. Smith, Will, and Penny were returning from a rock-gathering expedition, unaware that hidden in the undergrowth nearby lay an alien machine of unbelievable powers. Stop! Stop! I can't go on. Your father's vicious desire for revenge has broken me. Zachary Smith has finally been brought to his knees. It's not revenge, Dr. Smith. It's just that we've got to gather these rock samples from all over to see if we can find another vein of radioactive ore. What about the robot? He could carry all of this without any trouble. He's got to be free to use his sensors for any signs of radioactivity. This is ridiculous. Since when were human beings supposed to work for machines? Stop that! That is the final indignity. Go and tell your father to vent his hostility on someone else. Zachary Smith draws the line at carrying rocks for animals. Dr. Smith! Dr. Smith, come back here right now! Dr. Smith! Hey, Dr. Smith, Will, look what I found. Some kind of a nest and an egg. An egg? Well. Well, whoever laid that egg certainly selected a unique nesting place. Hey, this is one of the machines that the aliens left when they came. We'd better get away from here. You know what Dad said about them being dangerous? We weren't to touch them or even go near them. A very wise precaution, my dear. But surely there's no harm in collecting one little egg. I'd fetch it myself, but I'm completely exhausted. Uh, do you know about my bad back? Why don't you? It's perfectly safe, dear. Well, if you're sure. Yes. Careful, dear. fruit I shall prepare a meal that will rival the culinary orgies of ancient Rome. Hey, Debbie, get down there. You know what Dad said about that. Come down this minute. Debbie! Debbie, come on down. Come on. Welcome back, folks, for episode 15 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 15th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Return from Outer Space. Now, 
I have seen this one a bunch, and there are several scenes and dialogue that stick out in my mind. Is this another one that you had no memory of? Well, I guess I'm getting a little predictable with my Alzheimer's or something. Yeah, No, I have no memory of this one. But I don't actually think I ever saw this one because it's so unique. Uh, I think I would remember, you know, seeing the basic premise of what happens in this episode. I would remember that if I'd ever seen it. So I think the fact that it was a black and white and that it was pretty early on, it just was one of the ones I missed. And did they did they repeat this one? Was this one of the ones that got repeated? Actually, it wasn't a summer repeat, but of course, um, it made it on syndication. Sure. A lot of the black and white episodes in syndication were kind of given short shrift because they all wanted color, you know? Yeah, yeah. So... In fact, I don't think I ever saw any of the black and whites in syndication. But as far as the original broadcast, if I missed it that first time, it sounds like I just missed it. Very good. Well, we'll have fun talking about this one as usual. A few production notes before we begin with the story. The writer for this one is the 59-year-old Peter Packer. He's back again. We remember Packer was born in London. He was a big fan of Westerns. In fact, he was fascinated with all things Americana. And that no doubt explains the familiar tone of this nostalgic, sentimental script. He was also well-liked by the cast for the clever dialogue he wrote for the show's characters. His big claim to fame again is that he wrote 25 episodes of Lost in Space. Cushman is highlighting in this particular episode several instances where script editor Tony Wilson and Irwin Allen made significant contributions to how the final film script was realized. I'll try to mention some of those when we get to them. The director for this one was the 54-year-old Nathan Juran. He would eventually become the third most prolific director for Lost in Space with 13 credits. In addition, Allen hired him to do three Voyage to the Bottom of the Seas and five Time Tunnels. Juran was very experienced and well-respected as a director and a writer for the big screen with several classic sci-fi fantasy directing credits, including Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, 20 Million Miles to Earth, and The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Juran was a multi-talented veteran of Hollywood. In fact, he won his only Oscar as art director for the 1941 classic film, How Green Was My Valley. The entire cast and crew felt lucky to have Juran working for the show. I would say, but, you know, somehow 50-foot woman doesn't quite measure up to 20 million miles to Earth and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Those are real classics. Yes. Oh, I love Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. That's a great one. Yeah. This one was filmed from December 6th through the 13th of December, 1965, six days. It aired on December 29th, 1965. The timing of this episode is important. It's the week of Christmas when families are home together, which also explains the heartwarming tone of the episode. Yeah, it kind of has a feel of uh, it's a wonderful life in a lot of ways. It really does. We mentioned last week when we got to the freeze frame that instead of tune in next week, it said tune in two weeks from now. And the reason for that was Lost in Space was preempted on December 22nd, 1965 for a National Geographic special on Topless Lady Natives. No, no. It's uh, even funnier than that. It was uh, <laughs> Jane Goodall and the Chimpanzees. Perfect for Christmas time. <laughs> Although, in fairness, the chimpanzees were actually topless. So, <laughs> Good point. So, well, Lost in Space was so close to missing their delivery dates, they really benefited from this weak breather. So that was a bit yeah. of good fortune. Unexpected Christmas present. Indeed. All the characters are featured in this episode, and it's really a Will Robinson-centric episode, but 
boy, we have a slew of guest stars, and they're all veterans. We have the 53-year-old Rita Shaw, who plays Aunt Clara, and this was a typical role for her. She was a character actor with many roles, like Disney's Mary Poppins and the later TV show The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, where she played similar characters. She got paid $500 for two days of work. I remember that Ghost of Mrs. Muir. I, I tuned in to see the ghost, and all I got was a romantic comedy. I, I felt like, you know, boy, talk about false advertising. Jeez. But you got Charles Nelson Riley. That's right. <laughs> 59-year-old Walter Sand plays Sheriff Baxendale. He's a familiar face with over 300 screen credits, including the recurring role of Colonel Crockett on The Wild Wild West. He got $400 for two days' work. 14-year-old Donald Losby plays Davy Sims. I thought he did a great job in this one. Kurt Russell, interestingly, had been originally slated for this role, but was held back for a later episode of Lost in Space called The Challenge. The veteran child actor Losby was active from the age of two, and he got paid the highest of any of the guest stars, $600 for two days. Wow. Yeah. The future Mrs. Irwin Allen, 36-year-old Sheila Matthews, was cast to play Ruth Templeton. Allen was dating her at the time, and she would appear in two more episodes of Lost in Space, as well as several other Allen TV shows. Cushman doesn't mention her salary, make of that what you will, but by all counts, she was a very lovely lady, and she played a critical role in keeping Irwin Allen's legacy alive till this day. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe she worked for tips. You know what? <laughs> She was great and always a delight to see on the show, uh, knowing that she married Irwin later on just adds to the fun of seeing her this early on. Because, I mean, you know, this is before there was even any inkling, probably, of a, a long-term relationship. Absolutely, yeah. 58-year-old Helen Klebe got paid $200 for one day's work playing the phone operator, Miss Rachel. She later appeared in 66 episodes of The Waltons as Mamie Baldwin. I never watched The Waltons, did you? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a, a fun program, if you like, you know, a Depression-era <laughs> <laughs> stories. <laughs> but, you know, it was a tight-knit family, and uh, you I'm sure you're familiar with the classic sign-off that the lights are going out in the building, and it's good night, Mary Ellen, good night, right. John Boy, all that stuff. 35-year-old Robert Easton played the small-town newspaper man, Lacey. Now, I really liked him in this part. He, he was quite the character. He played Sparks, the radio man, in the movie version of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He kind of got gypped, 150 bucks for one day's work. I wonder if for him it was just sort of a lark, you know, sort of like, oh, I'll do that for you. Remember, I was there from the movie, you know, throw me a bone here. Yeah. Well, he, he played that part well. I liked him, so. He kind of reminds me of Ebb in Green Acres. Did you get that feeling? Absolutely. You read my mind. <laughs> yeah. 64-year-old Harry Harvey Sr. played Grover the Hardware Store Proprietor, a short little part. He's got hundreds of credits playing small character roles. He got $200 for one day. 14-year-old Keith Taylor, you may recognize him. He played Theodore the Fat Bully. This was kind of a role that he would be typecast in. He would return later as another rotten kid in the third season of Lost in Space, the episode titled The Promised Planet. He was also in similar roles on period TV shows like Leave It to Beaver. He also played another rotten kid in a Star Trek episode titled Miri, and he got $200 for his one day's work as a bully. Oh, every time I saw him, I just wanted to beat him up. You know, it's like <laughs> playing a villain like that really takes talent, though. And uh, although I'll, I'll mention that in that Miri episode, if I remember correctly, 
every single kid in that particular episode was a jerk, even Mary to some extent. So all the boys you wanted to beat up because it was basically Lord of the Flies. Right. That's what that right. episode was. Yeah. Yes. I remember him well, and I have a similar fe- feeling. 35-year-old Ann Dory played the first select person at Will's hearing. She got $150 for one day. She has lots of credits for Irwin Allen. The most interesting part of her bio, she stabbed Janet Lee in the famous shower scene early in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Even though you never see her face, she was cast in this part to prevent anyone in the audience from recognizing Anthony Perkins dressed up as mother. <laughs> well, if Janet was actually naked, that may have been another reason they had a female do it, you know, because otherwise they would have a long line of volunteers, male volunteers to do that role. Good point. Good point. Well, with that, let's get on to the story. Act one starts with a nice tight teaser. It's a little over three minutes long. As usual, the narrator is catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. We see Will, Penny, and Debbie, and of course, Dr. Smith, trudging along a path, buckets in hand on a mission to collect rocks, of all things. Dr. Smith, by the way, has two buckets, but even little Debbie has one. Smith has to stop for a rest because, as he says, Your father's vicious desire for revenge has broken me. Zachary Smith has finally been brought to his knees. (laughs) Will says, gosh, it's not revenge. They're back on the hunt for more deuteronium. Just then, Debbie puts a large rock in Smith's bucket, which nearly earns him another love tap from the good doctor. But he's no Dr. Doolittle, I guess. This was a hilarious scene of animal humor and seeing the monkey lift this, what is a very large rock, and just set it inside the bucket there. But it's showing off Debbie's training, and I'm I'm almost tempted to call it acting. She was really quite talented at this. She was. Smith turns to leave because Zachary Smith draws the line at carrying rocks for animals, and Will tries to stop him, but Smith ignores him. And suddenly we hear Penny call out that she's found something. It's an enormous egg resting in a nest on top of one of those matter transfer machines left by the Torons. Yeah, this looks like a uh, ostrich egg, you know, maybe one of those peacock ostriches. That mm-hmm. they, I thought they ate them all, but maybe one survived. Yes. Dr. Smith is totally intrigued by that egg, and he convinces Penny to retrieve it, even though John has warned the children to stay clear of those devices for their own safety. But of course, Smith never minds using his wiles to trick the children into doing his bidding, especially when there's a meal on the line. Penny carefully hands the egg to Smith, who's practically worshipping it. With this hint fruit, I shall prepare a meal that will rival the coronary orgies of ancient Rome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of a little surprised that CBS allowed them to work the word orgies in one of their scripts. But I guess, you know, Smith pulls it off with panache. (laughs) Mm, That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Anyway, Smith runs off to start cooking. Meanwhile, Debbie has climbed on top of the alien device. She appears to be turning one of its dials when it starts to hum and spark. Uh Uh-oh. Penny climbs up to get her down, but when she climbs back down, she's standing right on that little target pad for the teleporter machine. Sure enough, one of those transfer beams of light come down over her. And before we go to credits, we see Penny is trapped for a moment. I thought that was pretty cool because it looked like she was really pressing up against glass, not the pretend glass that the mutant was pressing up on in a few episodes ago. No, that was a really cool and subtle touch. They went through a lot of trouble to add that effect that few people would probably even notice because they had to drag in this huge sheet of glass or plexiglass or something and reshoot that scene, you know, with the effect and everything. But if you did spot it, it was definitely awesome. 
It was. It was cool. But then when the beam flies back up into space, both Penny and the bloop are gone. And wow, we're left in real suspense yet again. And this is another case, though, where CBS mentioned that Penny shouldn't appear to be in terror, just confused. But clearly this was ignored because I was really scared for her at that point. Yeah, and it's all the worse because no one's there to witness it. So they don't even know that she's gone. Smith is gone. Right. So she's disappeared. And how the heck are they ever going to know? Exactly. When we return from the opening titles, we see gourmet chef Smith alone outside the ship polishing off the last bite of his culinary omelet feast. Maureen walks by and does a double take. If I didn't know there were eggs on this planet, I'd swear that was an omelet. But of course, Smith lies and hides the eggshell and claims, oh, it's just a few exotic herbs from the garden. Amazing what you can do with a little seasoning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he picked a pretty bad place to sneak down his food. I mean, right in front of the entrance of the ship. I mean, you know, behind a rock might have been a little better. I'm just saying. Indeed. Well, John and Don appear from inside the ship and waving an empty glass bottle, Don stops to ask Smith about some missing carbon tetrachloride. We're going to hear that one a lot this episode. Is that one of your 11 herbs and spices? And Smith replies hardly, but he admits that he has been using the fluid to treat stains. (laughs) Sadly, since he left the cap off the bottle, it's evaporated away. Of course, Don is steamed at Smith again for his negligence, and that's not good, though, because John explains in a lecture to Dr. Smith, the food purifier, which is used for preservation, requires carbon tet, and without it, they'll be limited to eating non-perishable food until they can find a substitute. Just then, Smith offers to make up for it by fending for his own food. Hmm... As this unfolds, Will and the robot walk up. Yeah, that's a, that's a first for Smith. I don't remember him ever offering to fend for his own food, do you? No, no. no. But meanwhile, John's been snooping around on that table. He's been kind of curious, and he finds the hidden eggshell in Smith's picnic basket. I thought Guy Williams did his usual good job of acting here, appearing to be surprised by that large eggshell, but then looking at Smith, not really so surprised. Yeah. He asks Smith where he got it, and Dr. Smith says he doesn't remember. This sounds like one of my kids, you know. Oh, I don't know. But Will pipes up right away and says, oh, it was down by the caves. And that gets John's attention. He mentions, well, that's by that Toron matter transfer unit, which is off limits. I hope you guys haven't been fiddling with that because it's dangerous. And, of course, Smith, Demures, and John and Maureen go back inside the Jupiter at that point. You know, it should be mentioned that they're talking about the same Toron matter transfer machine that the Torrens beam back with them at the end of the sky is falling episode you remember that but for some reason now it's back on the planet just rusted and over green a bit but hey it's a teleporter so it's not like it's impossible that they teleported it back for some reason you know i mean I- i'm glad they did it because it was such a great device to spawn this story but this is just one of those inconsistencies showing that they're they're basically making up these stories as they go along you know a lot of uh, series now they will plan out the storyboards for the entire series before they start that season series will all be planned out this lost in space it sounds like they're just making it up at you know by a, a week by week basis but it still works it was still a genius idea i thought well it's true although did you notice that 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 carved out rock was right there though 
they had. Yeah, that's why that's that's why I say it's the same machine that got beamed up. Right. If it had been in a different location, you might have been ar- able to argue. Well, maybe it was a different um, you know transfer machine. Maybe Ex- they had a different stations. But no, it was right next to that 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 rock. And they even kind of covered up the rock with some ivy, like they were trying to hide that. I don't know why, but. Yeah, I don't know either. Maybe it was supposed to signify a lot of time had gone by. Yeah. But uh, but be that as it may, yes, it kind of made my head scratch as well. But anyway, it works. Will asked Dr. Smith if he's seen Penny because she's missing, and he hopes he didn't let her near that MTU. And he says, oh, of course not, my boy. I'd never let her do a thing like that, of course, unless there happened to be a large egg resting in it. Yeah. But he considers the matter and decides they should go looking for her, and they should also take along some celery in the picnic basket as a snack. So they do. Here we're getting a little foreboding of how Smith loves celery almost as much as little green onions. Mmm, celery. That may come back, right? (laughs) Yeah. They get to the Torah machine, and Smith is munching on one of those celery stalks. No one's in sight, though. No Penny, no Debbie, nothing. Will jumps to the obvious conclusion... And it's a worrying one. Pointing to the MTU, he asks Dr. Smith, you don't think? And Smith says, no, it couldn't be. She must already be back home. And then, so that their little safari doesn't have to be a total loss, Smith decides he wants to experiment with the machine. Obviously, he wants to return home from outer space. Will says, well, they shouldn't monkey with it. They promised not to touch it. And Smith says, yes, they did. But not the robot. Uh, he's what you call a jailhouse lawyer. Mm-hmm. It's a little technicality there. So sure enough, Smith orders the robot to make an attempt to compute the alien machine. Now then, my steely-eyed sorcerer, let me see you demonstrate your superior over the container of molecular magic. Mm. And the robot does go to work. And at first, he seems to know what he's doing. And Smith is already imagining himself beaming back to Earth. But after a minute with no progress, Smith gives up on the whole idea and leaves the area along with Will. I guess a great feeling of weariness has overcome him. Yeah, I kind of felt he gave up a little too quick. But, you know, this demonstrates just how much determination Will uh, Smith has. He's extremely impatient like a kid. Yes. He wants immediate gratification. Right. But as they depart, the camera shows us that picnic basket has been left on the little MTU target pad. The robot continues to fiddle with the alien device, but after a few steps, Smith then realizes he left the basket back with the robot. So he sends Will back to fetch it. And when Will returns to the machine, the basket has now disappeared, just like Penny and Debbie. He asks, where'd it go? And the robot reports that the Baskets in a state of molecular change, whatever that means. It means it's being teleported. Mm, apparently. Will asks the robot to reverse the signal and try to recover the basket, but robot's not having much luck with that. Apparently, the robot isn't quite fluid in Toron computer language. Will asks him to try something way out and then wild, which he does by manipulating the controls a little bit more. And I thought it was kind of funny the way Bob May was waving his arms around like a madman. It, it looks mm-hmm. like the robot's playing like a, a, a Moog synthesizer or something. And, you know, the, it's even making kind of musical tones as he's doing it. Mm-hmm. But those wild signals he's sending start to have an effect because the MTU starts humming and sparking again. And after a few more explosive flashes from the machine, a transfer beam comes down and sure enough, back come Penny Debbie, and even the missing basket all together. They seem to be no worse for wear, and Penny has no idea she's been gone for all morning. She and Debbie head back, leaving Will very excited. You know, I love that thing about uh, 
she was in a she was in a state of molecular change. And you know, the whole concept of these teleporters is that you teleport someone, you break them down, and then you reconstruct them somewhere else. But if you don't reconstruct them somewhere else, they're just there kind of in this timeless state. And mm. apparently that's where Penny was during all this time. She hadn't reappeared anywhere else. So she didn't know that time had even passed. Right, right. Well, this is going to add to the the doubt that uh, Will is going to get about his story later. But anyway, Smith returns to the scene, but when Will tells him what happened, he's doubtful. Will runs back to tell Dad and the others, and the scene ends with a little laugh as the doubting Smith realizes he's standing on that target pad when right on cue the machine starts to spark up again and a frightened Smith runs away too. Yeah, he's not going to take any chances, just Mm. in case. Exactly. Back at the ship, Will's trying to explain what happened with the Tauron machine, but everyone seems doubtful. Of course, it doesn't help that Penny can't remember anything. Like you said, she was trapped in that beam, but she doesn't remember a thing. John's more concerned that his orders to leave that device alone were violated, and he reiterates to everyone the Tauron machine is off limits. Yeah, why get excited about the possibility of maybe getting all the way back to Earth, or or for that matter, make a possible Nobel Prize winning scientific discovery in space travel when you can instead get angry at your kid for disobeying your orders. I mean, as a father, I can relate to that. Of course, Will could have said, if you don't believe me, you could just check for her fingerprints on the glass. (laughs) (laughs) First things first when you're a parent, right? (laughs) Will's left frustrated because it seems that everyone thinks he's telling a tall tale, and this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the episode. Just then, Smith shows up, and when he hears that Will's being grilled about violating John's order to stay clear of the MTU, he once again lies about ever being at the machine. Oh, but he's been at the weather station all morning. And I thought that was particularly low on his part, because, don't you? I mean, it's his... Yeah, I mean, Will covers for Smith all the time, and Smith throws Will under the bus, not only when it comes to turning him over to aliens and stuff, but even in the little family dynamics. You know, he'll never do the slightest thing for him. I know. And for some reason, Will does does cover for him and he only says that it was he and the robot that were at the MTU. Still, no matter what Will says, no one believes his story about the morning's amazing events and that does it. John decides that he and Don are going to destroy the MTU the next morning. The temptation to tamper with that dangerous device is just too powerful. I also noted that instead of merely giving a lecture, John for once also dispenses a little discipline by sending Will to his room for disobeying. Yeah, he must have been listening to this podcast, but if you're listening now out, John. Spank him. Spank him. <laughs> Lay the hands on him, okay? If it works for the religious leaders, it's probably going to work for you. As the family heads down to the lower deck, Dr. Smith pauses to scoff at the whole idea of Will's wild tale of molecular change base. He states confidently to Don that the Toron machine is out of commission. Don tries to catch Smith in his line and says, well, how would you know that? Smith almost admits he was at the MTU, but catches himself and says... You and I will never be friends, Major. (laughs) Dr. Smith, that's your first logical statement, Dodd says. (laughs) As the act draws to a close, we see Will in his bunk, and he just can't sleep. He's talking to himself, and he's clearly frustrated that no one believes him. He's also convinced that that MTU could be useful. It could be the savior that they've all been looking for, and he really doesn't like the idea of it being destroyed. So he forms a little plan to use the Toron machine to save their family. Of course, this is a new toy that Will wants to keep playing with. That may be part of his motivation. Yeah, he's always talking to himself, I think, more than anybody else on this show, with the possible exception of Smith. You know, Smith and Will are 
are big monologue people, and they like to talk to themselves a lot. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, think about it. You, when's the last time you hear Penny or, or Judy or John? I mean, the only time John talks to himself is when he's recording his diary. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, about that. Yeah, it's true. So the next morning, Will returns to the Toron MTU with the robot, and he puts up a hand-painted placard that warns no one to disturb the machine, property of the Torons, etc. And They'd better pay attention to this sign. Do you remember all about your command capabilities? Affirmative. Well, listen carefully. On my command, you will initiate signals for round trip to the planet Earth. Roger. Are your signals compatible with that destination? Destination Earth is my place of origin. It's almost 0800. At 0800, you will signal matter transfer unit to send me to the planet Earth. You will remain here until high noon. High noon is dialect for 1200. All right. At 1,200 hours, you will signal matter transfer unit to transfer me back here. Is that clear? Affirmative. No later. Affirmative. Well, here goes. And then Will stands on that little polished target pad, ready for countdown. At the last second, he realizes that he left his lunch by the robot. My lunch. It's right there. Can I go get it? Negative. Matter transfer unit already signaled to send subject to the planet Earth. But it'll just take a... Before we break for commercial, we hear that cool sound effect starting up and the transfer maser beam of light drops down on Will and then snaps him back up into the cosmos and Will Robinson disappears back into the sky. Well, you know, this should settle our earlier discussion about whether the Torrens had a ship in orbit, remember? That's true. Here, this this beam comes down from, you know, presumably from the planet. They couldn't possibly still have that spaceship up there now after all these episodes. So apparently they really do have the technology to send this beam all the way from wherever their planet is. Or maybe if they have a mother ship, you know, way out somewhere else. But it's it's not around the... I think it's safe to say it's not around that planet. Well, they've also managed somehow to, you know, disprove the whole theory of the speed of light being 186,000 miles per second. <laughs> because I can clearly see that light beam coming and going for up and down in the sky. But that that's that's another little matter we won't mention. Yeah, not only is it not fast, but it has about the speed of a roboroid chasing uh, <laughs> Dr. Smith. You know, it's super slow. It molasses. Uh, don't ask too many questions. It looks cool, and that's what matters. It does. When we come back from the commercial to start Act 2, the entire mood of the episode is going to change dramatically. We see Will beam down from space onto a sloping, snow-covered roof. It looks like a very non-alien, normal-looking building. Like an outhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very earthly, that's for sure. Will has returned from outer space because he shouts, I made it! I'm on Earth! But then he slips and falls, and a mini avalanche of snow lands on the head of another boy below, who's loading some sacks of feed onto a wagon. So the other boy, who looks a little older than Will, looks up and shouts at Will, Hey, will you quit that? We seem to be transported, though, not only through space, back to Earth, but back in time, because the first glimpses that we get of this wintertime piece of Earth, combined with the track 
tracks of music from Cyril Mockridge's score for the classic Fox film Miracle on 34th Street make me feel we're watching one of those classic holiday family movies instead of a sci-fi adventure film. Yeah, but it'll become clear as the story progresses that we haven't gone back in time except visually because time-wise they remember when the Robinsons took off. Indeed, yes. You know, I'll also mention this episode would garner extremely high ratings, crushing the competition for that week. So it might have tempted Irwin to recycle it. But in the cast commentary for this episode, Bill Moomy said one of the reasons he really liked this was because it was a one-off. It's one that they never did anything quite like it before or after. So... Yeah, that is neat. And you're you're saying when you say recycle, you don't mean just repeat it. You mean take the storyline and try to incorporate it again. But it is such a cool storyline, just that whole sort of concept. You know, it would have been sort of fun if maybe they had done something different with it, like maybe get him back to Earth, but have him go back in time before the Robinsons ever had left Earth. So people are going, what are you talking about? You know, there's no such thing as spaceships, boy, and stuff like that. Or maybe it could have even been another character. But it, at the same time, I mean, you, you don't generally think of uh, Lost in Space as the uh, highest integrity of storylines, but I do respect the fact that they didn't recycle it. Well, they actually did what you just said in the third Oh, really? <laughs> well, that's great. All right. Hey. <laughs> so they must, you must be on the same wavelength as they are. So that's pretty cool. As long as they don't like create any android that has spray paint on his face that says something like Crush, Kill, Destroy. I mean, that's where I would draw the line. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so then we get the introductions out of the way and Will meets the other boy who's named Davy Sims and he asks, Will, where'd you come from? And Will says, pre-planus, that's a planet in another galaxy. So we finally, this is the first time we learned what the name of that planet is that the Robinsons are stuck on. And he pulls out his walkie-talkie. Wow. Wonder how he got that out of the sand pit. Yeah. Will's responses seem like obvious make-believe to Davy, and he, he quickly jumps to the conclusion that Will's a runaway from another town, and that's when Davy tells Will he's in Hatfield, Four Corners, Vermont. Now we all know where this place is out of time. Which, by the way, doesn't really exist if ever you Google it, unfortunately. Oh, man. I didn't think to do that. That's too bad. Well, anyway, Will wants to call Alpha Control. I wish he'd call us. We're Alpha Control. Why why haven't we gotten a call from Bill? (laughs) Because he smashes the radio. That's why. Oh, true. And he does try the radio. But as you said, Davey grabs it out of his hands and accidentally drops it, breaking it. Oops. Now how is he going to get in touch with us? I mean, Alpha Control. And Will's really upset at this. But Davey thinks it's just a dime store toy. And he apologizes, saying, "I'll, I'll get you another one. Don't worry about this. And this is one of the first of many frustrating events that Will's going to have to endure during his four hours back on Earth. At every step, he's going to be, he's going to meet some sort of obstacle that seems like it's impossible to overcome. Well, was it just me or did it, did it seem a little unrealistic that Will would then take the, the damaged uh, walkie-talkie and smash it on the ground? I mean, yeah. it just seemed like, you know, Will, you're you're electronics genius. You could probably at least open it up and see if maybe the, the battery just got to, you know dislodged or something, but... You know, we know why they did it. They had to do it in order to progress the story. But I was just glad that he had a, a backup plan, you know, to get in touch with Alpha Control and took that walkie-talkie. So I agree. Will insists to Davy that he needs to get in touch with Alpha Control. And Davy has a great line in this. He says, you kids are getting wackier every day. But he agrees to take Will to his aunt's house to make a call 
home anyway. And when they arrive at Aunt Clara's, we learn that it is, in fact, 1997 America, and it's not only overcrowded, but it's technologically segregated. This is an era of Earth that they can build interstellar spacecraft like the Jupiter 2, but small towns in America are still stuck in the 1930s with wind-up telephones and switchboard operators. No iPhones to be found in Hatfield Four Corners. No TVs either. I don't remember seeing a TV set anywhere in this town. Yeah, well, there were no cars except the bus, you know, but maybe Hatsfield Four Corners is an Amish community, you know. They didn't seem to have any of those cars. They only had that one bus. But the government institutions still have, you know, they'll, they'll still run buses in Amish communities because they're not, you know, they're, they're a secular organization. Now, that doesn't explain the missing crowds, though. Did you notice all those wooden spoke buggies parked around there? I mean, these weren't just buggies. They were like out of gun smoke. Right, right. So it was definitely a primitive type pre-19, you know, like I, I wasn't around in the 1940s, but I kind of think that there wasn't uh, wooden spoke buggies still on the roads. Yeah. Well, a lot of that's explained by the fact that they were filming this on the Fox back lot, their old Western set. They just redressed it to make it look a little bit more modern, but it, it still does look something completely out of time for 1997. Yeah, when you get into the uh, general store and there's the Cracker Barrel, you know, and everything. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't stop them from having sophisticated chemicals right next to the cashier, but anyway. Next, Davies apparently left Will alone in the front room with that old crank phone on the wall because he's trying to make an expensive long-distance call from Aunt Clara's. He can't direct dial, of course. He has to ask the operator to put him through to Colonel Mason at Alpha Control, and she thinks it's Davy pulling a stunt and won't let him. And Will's frustrated, to be sure. He tries to explain who he is and why he needs to make that expensive but very important phone call. But he's getting nowhere with her or anyone else for the rest of this show. I thought that was a nice touch. You know, she it's a small town, obviously, and it's not overcrowded, obviously, because she actually knows who lives there. You know? Right. She knows who lives at the actual number. Right. Davey walks in munching on a piece of pie and stops Will, apologizing to Miss Rachel the operator for the confusion. He says he only let this goofy kid use the phone to call his folks, and then he hangs up. And this is a nicely framed cut of Will, because he's distracted by that piece of pie in Davy's hands, and it's like a close-up of the pie in the foreground, and Will's <laughs> hungry face is in the background. I thought that was a nice little touch. Mm -hmm. And the annoyed Miss Rachel adds, she'll put him through to his parents when he gives her the right number, but he better not ask for any colonels or generals, wasting all her time with that space nonsense. Yeah. Will tries again to tell Davy his story so that he'll let him call Alpha Control. He gives his new friend a pretty good summary of the Robinson's story in 20 seconds, but Davy's pretty sure it's a boy's tall tale. Just then, Aunt Clara walks in with a nice tray of apple pie and a glass of milk for Will. And of course, he can't resist. She seems like a very nice matronly woman, and she's very kind-hearted. You must be very hungry, Will. And Will says, not exactly. And he's munching down that pie in big bites, and it looks yummy. Will doesn't bother with a fork or napkin on the tray. He's, he's back to telling her his story now. He says, well, they are on short rations back on pre-planus because the food purifier is on the fritz. This is something that is going to happen almost throughout the entire show. Will is continuing on with his earnest manner. He's telling the truth, but he just hasn't caught on that it's not helping him anywhere with these folks any more than it did with his parents. In both cases, he was telling the truth, but no one believes him. Yeah, see, this is the thing about kids. They have imaginations and adults don't. So, you know, even though he's telling something that makes complete sense, they haven't experienced it. Therefore, it's absolutely absurd. Exactly. It is. It seems absurd to them. It seems like it's a fantastic imaginary story 
from a boy who's run away from home. But Aunt Claire is kind of playing along and everything that Will says, she goes, oh, well, that's a shame. And Davy's taking this in without a word from across the room. Then Clara shoots a knowing glance back to Davy as Will licks the last pie crumbs from his fingers and he checks his watch because remember, he only had four hours to contact Alpha Control before he gets beamed back to Preplanus. And he's got to let them know how to find his family before then. I thought this was funny because Will asks Aunt Clara if it's nine o'clock Earth time. Apparently, Vermont is in the same time zone as that little garden spot on Preplanus because it's actually three minutes past nine. The countdown has started for the rest of the adventure. Yeah, you also have to wonder, why did he give it just four hours, you know? But I think the answer is revealed by his uh, consumption of that pie. He wants to be back in time for lunch. Well, he realizes he's got less than three hours. He says, can we call Alpha Control? And Aunt Clara says, yes. But uh, then she ushers him into the parlor so that she can have a little talk with Will. And even Davy is embarrassed now. Now, let's go in here and have a little talk. Just sit right down over here. Now, Will, dear, I know it's great fun being an astronaut and traveling through space and landing on strange planets. Now, now, you'll be quiet, Davy. I remember the Robinson family very well. They were the first family in space. Yeah, everyone remembers the Robins, the first family of space, except apparently no one actually remembers what they look like because they're <laughs> staring at him and nobody recognizes him. You know, you would have thought this guy would have been the headline on every hologram magazine that there was. But, you know, no matter how many people he sees, nobody recognizes him. How frustrating. It's very frustrating. I guess we all remember how exciting it was when they took off last year. Oh, seems like such a long time ago now. If I could just... Things happen so fast in the world today. I'm afraid a lot of people have already forgotten about them. Uh, Will, maybe if you could, too. Uh, sort of put them out of your mind for a spell. Yes, but... And think about your own family. Now, they must be wondering where you are. Why don't you phone them, and maybe they'll come over for you? The Robinsons are my own family, and they can't come and get me even if they knew where I was. The Jupiter II crashed onto a hillside, and that's where it is now. And it can't get out unless a rescue ship reaches them. That's why I'm here. Yeah, well, then how'd you get here? By the matter transfer unit that the Torrens left on the planet. Well, I thought they'd taken it back with them. But the other morning, I was looking for some radioactive minerals, and... You were looking for what? Some radioactive minerals for a propulsion unit. Well, that's when I found the matter transfer unit. And the robot helped me to get it working, and that's how I got here on a maser beam. But that's not important. I've got to reach off a control. That's very important. By the way, did you notice that Aunt Clara's house is all decorated for Christmas? There's a tree and garlands and wreaths everywhere. And so it not only is this Christmas week for the broadcast, but it's Christmas in Hatfield Four Corners. And I thought that was kind of a nice touch. Yeah, they have like a uh, cardigan sweater, some dress shoes, a new Schwinn bicycle. All the products they happen to be advertising on CBS at that time. Hmm. <laughs> Product placement. Uh, Will, dear... Let's take a drive over to the sheriff's office. I'm sure he can help you reach your family. 
I can't reach my family from Earth. I want to reach out for control. Well, he'll help you do that, too. Much easier than I can. So Aunt Claire decides to take Will over to the sheriff's office. And when we open in that scene, Will's already told his tale because the first thing that the sheriff says is, Well, Sonny, that's a very interesting yarn you've been spitting. Walter Sand is definitely the picture of the local small town sheriff here. He's sympathetic, but he has a very serious face. And he's even wearing one of those old-timey red and black plaid winter coats. I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, you thought it was red? I thought it was green and black plaid. Your black and white screen must have just needed adjustment. (laughs) Okay, busted. (laughs) And behind them is that tall, lanky, stereotypical local beat reporter, Lacey. He's got the long coat, the derby hat with a little press card stuck in the hat band. And he's got all these bags looped over his shoulders and one of those old 1930s style newspaper flash cameras. I wonder Mm -hmm. if it takes color. (laughs) Yeah. Or a holographic film. Perhaps. Uh, He's standing in the background. I guess he's supposed to be a witness. He didn't need to say a word for us to know who he is, but then he pipes up anyway to say, it'll make a nice little filler for the weekend edition. It occurs to me that not much happens in that small little backwater because he probably spends most of his days lurking around the sheriff's office in case someone's cat gets stuck in a tree or a cow is reported missing from the barn. Yeah, this is kind of like Carl Kolchak listening uh, in on the police scanner, you know? That's where you get all the good tips. (laughs) Well, the cool thing, though, is that Will gets to turn around, and then Lacey takes his photograph. And so hopefully that eventually winds up in alpha control, and that'll be proof that that was Will Robinson back on the planet. Exactly. Assuming, of course, anybody reading the paper remembers the famous Space Boy from an entire year ago, you know? Yes. Yeah. Will insists that he's not telling a yarn, and he asks, can I finally call Alpha Control? Time is running out. He's only got two hours left, and we know that because there's a clock behind him that says it's almost 10 a.m., and the sheriff kind of balks, and he says, "Uh, we can get a hold of Alpha Control in a snap. Don't you worry about that. He's got plenty of time, right, Clara? We're starting to get the impression something's being cooked up for Will. They're not letting him in on. Then Clara gives Will a hug and goodbye, and she says, will you guys come back and visit us when this is all over? And Will says, yes, ma'am, if I can ever get us all back here. Yeah, that was kind of spooky. I mean, Claire acted like they were about to ship him off to the Soylent Green factory or something. I know. The way she asked him to come back made it sound like she didn't think that he could come back, ever. Right. So next we see the sheriff ushering Will out the door, leaving Clara and Lacey alone for a little exchange. And the reporter says, sure would be funny if I print this story and it turns out to be true. I better call Alpha Control just to make sure there's nothing to it. This little added bit about Lacey calling Alpha Control was Irwin's idea. And he sent that in a memo to Tony Wilson, the story editor. It's one of the many crucial plot elements that he added. And I think it makes the story a lot more interesting that he did that. Oh, yeah, but you know what? There was that one little thing, that little press thing in his hat. It said Weekly World News. So when when he tells them that it's Weekly World News calling, they're going to think it's another Bat Boy hoax, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I didn't see that. Well, Clara agrees that it's a good idea for Lacey to call Alpha Control. And then he says, I'm going to urge parents to watch out their children don't get too serious about all this science fiction they read. It could have mighty serious consequences if a boy really believes he's from outer space. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Claire agrees. Well, and then, but she adds, if the boy's story really is a fairy tale. So maybe she's starting to wonder. Yeah, I think the uh, writers are probably having some fun with that, too, thinking, you know, we're we're going to be making 
fun of the people who make fun of science fiction by showing them making fun of science fiction. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's meta. Next, we see the sheriff escort Will outside to a waiting school bus where a group of other boys are milling about, and Will's still asking about making his call, and the sheriff continues to fob him off. Don't worry, don't worry. Where you're going, you'll be able to do a lot of things, Sonny. Ooh, that has a bad ring ring to it. And I notice now they've given Will a a matching plaid winter coat uh, so he doesn't freeze in that winter weather. I don't know if it's green and black or red or black, so good call there. That was mighty uh, white Christmas of them. It definitely was. So then the sheriff pulls aside Ruth, future Mrs. Allen, and she's a very nice-looking woman. She's standing by the door of the bus with a clipboard checking off names. And then we see this placard that's on the side of the bus, and we finally get clued into what's going on. Will, Will's being put aboard the weekly bus, taking wayward boys off to Juvie Hall. Wow. <laughs> it's going from bad to worse. And I have to wonder, a weekly bus? How many delinquents do they have running around these small towns in 1997? Oh, yeah. And in an Amish town, no less. But, you mm. know, you can always tell the worst rebels in an Amish town because they're the clean-shaven ones who do not wear black. <laughs> oh, man. Next, we cut back to Preplanus. John and Don are arriving at that Tauron MTU device presumably to destroy it before it can cause more trouble. The robot is still at his post, waiting for the time to beam Will back, and the men are surprised to see him there. Then they read the sign left on the MTU by Will. It's obviously his handiwork, and John's mad again that he disobeyed him. Don takes up for him, though. He says it's got to be irresistible for a boy like Will to mess with that machine. And they call out for Will, but of course they have no idea that he's at least 10 light years away. Now, now, point of order, point of order. How do they know he's at how far away Earth is if they don't even know where Preplanus is. What's this 10 light years bit? Well, that's something that uh, Will mentions earlier in the episode. He says, my family's at least 10 light years away from here, so I'm just... Well, how would he know? Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, Will said it must be true because everything else he says in this episode is true and nobody believes him, so I don't want to pile on. Well... If we're going to go down this road, there's lots of inconsistencies in what Will says, because he says at least 10 light years away. And then at another time, he says in another galaxy. And that wouldn't that wouldn't cut. Yeah. Quite. Tra- yeah. And of course, uh, uh, we still haven't figured out when they announced that this planet was going to be called Preplanus. That just kind of came out of the blue. It did. Like a Thorin light ray or something. Yeah. Uh, I- I'm glad to at least know that it's pre-planet, so it's nice to have a name for the planet. But again, how did they know that? I don't know. So I like the name. It's a cool name. It's like it's a pre-planet. Get it? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Don's ready to get down to business and destroy the machine, and he orders the robot back to the ship. And he adds in Dr. Smith fashion, no dawdling. But the robot says, no way, Jose. Fixed position must be maintained. And then, then, John discovers that Will's left behind his lunch sack. And he sort of realizes something must be wrong. He's not exactly sure what, but something just doesn't seem right, and he's worried. Will wouldn't run off without his lunch. So John pauses, and Don's already aiming his laser at the MTU, and then then John abruptly stops him before he can fire. His gut is telling him they better wait to destroy the machine after they find Will. Looking at the alien teleporter, Don says, You don't think that... And John says, I don't know what to think. And the men depart the scene to find Will. You have to empathize with John at that point because Will is just the kind of kid who's smart enough to pull off something that stupid, you know? 
Right. It must be very nerve-wracking to be his dad every week, you know, because he's so daring. And when you stop and think about it, you know, he's stepping into a disintegration device, you know. Maybe it will work, maybe it won't work, but the chances are very, very, not only possible, but likely in all the places are in the galaxy that if he materializes anywhere at all, it's going to be in the cold vacuum of outer space, okay? So there's only a, you know, maybe let's just say 10,000 planets that could sustain life that he could rematerialize on and only one of them is earth and the other 99.9 percent of everything else is a cold vacuum of outer space so you know this was reckless to say the least yep it sure was this part where john stops don at the last second was Irwin's brainchild as well and i think it does add to the level of tension that's building in the story and again it was very well played by guy williams just then, from behind rock, Dr. Smith emerges with a look that says he's up to no good. He makes sure the coast is clear, and then he turns his attention to the robot. Apparently, he hasn't had his chance to belittle the poor mechanical man yet today. This is Smith's guilty pleasure, don't you know? Oh, yeah, he loves torturing that poor robot. Uh, we love watching him do it, though. So what does that say about us? Mm, yes. Well... I'd like you to explain just what you're doing here. All systems preempted. Fixed position must be maintained. Really? Well, I've got a little work for you that's far more important than experimenting with celery salad or whatever it is that boy's got you doing. Follow me. Imperative that I do not abandon my station. Repeat, imperative. At 1200 hours, initiate signal to matter transfer unit to return subject to original form and location. Never mind all that nonsense. You're coming with me. Imperative that I do not abandon my... That is a little imperative you didn't bargain for. We can't have you bearing false witness against me, can we? Now then, just a little reprogramming, and then they can ask you anything they like about me. There. And... There. Now then, I'd like to hear your answer to a hypothetical question. And I'll give you a little hint. Your answer will be negative. Question! Was Dr. Smith, to your knowledge, ever in the vicinity of the matter transfer unit with or without Will Robinson? Ah, a golden silence. So much better than chattering, isn't it? Now then, shall we go? And this time you will, of course, follow me, won't you? Well? Go. Then he goes off with the robot. Fixed position is not being maintained. And interestingly, as they depart, we see that matter transfer unit spark and flash again as we leave. We're hoping it stays in one piece long enough for Will to get home. Yeah. You know, watching him reprogram that robot was very... It's frustrating and it's nerve-wracking because the robot is trying to resist, but Smith is basically lobotomizing them. And if he cuts the right wire... You know, there's nothing that the robot can do about it. So we just have to wait and hope that he somehow holds out. But he's actually reaching inside the guts of that robot and he's snipping wires. So, mm -hmm. you know, anything can happen. Yeah, it's nerve-wracking for sure. 
Next, as the act comes to a close back on Earth, Will's got problems of his own. He's still waiting outside the sheriff's office to, to be taken by bus to the boys' home, and he's nervously checking his watch as the countdown continues, while the rest of the delinquents are playing loudly, as boys will do. Then, right on cue, our designated rotten kid bully notices Will and takes a chance to taunt him, which leads ultimately to an interesting little skirmish. The bully asks Will if he's in a hurry, and Will says he needs to make a call. Who to? Alpha control, if you must know. And then this jerk pulls back Will's borrowed coat, revealing Will's spacesuit. Hey, fellas, we got ourselves a little spaceman here. And he's going to regret having an audience for what comes next, because he calls the other boys over. Will tries to explain who he is and what he's doing. And then the bully really gets nasty with the teasing. I mean, he this guy really can play a bully well. He thinks he's going to embarrass Will by quizzing him with some stump the monkey science question, but this backfires on the bully when Will answers every question and then embarrasses him in front of the other boys by stumping him with questions he can't answer. Oh, uh, well, I bet you don't even know what the Doppler effect is. Oh, yeah, I do. It's like a rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you got that answer from a comic book. Yeah. And they all laugh. Now the bully is embarrassed, and he retreats to a typical tactic used by jerks everywhere when they start to lose arguments. He tries to morally shame Will by saying, it's disrespectful for you to wear that spacesuit because the real Will Robinson is dead. Folks, this is how you know you're really winning a debate with someone when they pull out the ultimate loser's trump card of baselessly shaming you or name-calling. And it's so typical, and it's a real sign of desperation. You know, you just wanted to punch the guy's lights out, but, you know, so did 30 million other television watchers at the time. Well, it doesn't work on Will, though. He, he's just enraged, especially when the bully continues. And what finally sets him off is when the kid says, the Robinsons are all dead. They're not just dead, but they're skeletons floating in space. And I wanted to punch him out, too. That was a really low blow. I wonder if that actor needed a bodyguard the next day at school, you know, because, I mean, everyone would have just wanted to just clobber him. Before we go to break, a brawl breaks out between Will and the bully, and Will seems to be getting the better of the bully, or at least holding his own, and the commotion from the fight causes Ruth to intervene and break it up. Will calms down and tells her he's got to make a phone call, and he's only got an hour left now. So she takes Will back inside the sheriff's office, and the camera shifts back to the boys as the act ends, with the bully ominously saying that no foster parent's ever going to take him. He's going to be stuck here for the rest of his life. Says the stupid fat bully about the cute red-haired blue-eyed boy genius. When we return from commercial to start Act 3, John and Don are searching for Will without luck, and they decide to return to the ship to use the radioscope. They also need to keep working on that food preservation unit. I like the direction here again, too, because as the men turn around to leave, the camera pans over in a near-continuous shot to a clearing, and Dr. Smith is reclining, listening to the robot repeat a series of platitudes. (laughs) Dr. Smith has always been a loyal and self-sacrificing member of the Jupiter 2 crew. Dr. Smith is incapable of telling the truth. (laughs) I busted gut on that scene. Smith is delighted listening to the compliments until he hears that last one and he he, he insists that the robot change it to Smith is incapable of lying. And then the robot repeats, Smith is incapable. (laughs) <laughs> it was hysterical. It, was. it shows that the robot is not only gaining a personality, but he's also gaining a sense of humor. 
Oh, it's great. And this just enrages Smith. says, of telling a lie, you ninny. <laughs> yeah. But the robot continues to insist he must return to his fixed position at the MTU so he can return Will from outer space. And this causes Smith to switch the robot off again. This will be the last chance he gets to do that. Then we cut back to Earth, where a hearing of sorts has been convened. Wow, the wheels of municipal justice move a lot quicker in Hatfield Four Corners than they do where I live. (laughs) Well, haven't you heard? The Amish don't believe in unions. (laughs) They get things done. In fact, they're famous for building barns in just one day, you know, so they're not going to wait around for like 30 years to execute somebody. No way, no how. I guess so, because he's only been there for three hours and he's already facing the high tribunal. Yep. Will hasn't changed the story, but no one's buying it. And Ruth is offering some sincere counsel. While the committee is in a whispering conference, Will takes his chance to slip away, and he watches as the doomsday bus to the concentration camp leaves without him. <laughs> Darn it! He missed his last transportation to the Kenemets planet to serve man. Of all the rotten luck! <clears throat> he tries to make a call from a payphone. Oh, that's really out of time. When's the last time you saw a payphone? <laughs> 1997? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No dice, though, and he doesn't have a nickel, so he can't help himself there. Then he ducks into the hardware store, and again, he tries to call Colonel Mason at Alpha Control, Cape Kennedy. He even says, at Cape Kennedy. But when the proprietor hears what he's doing, he stops him. It's a long-distance call. We know how expensive those are. Yeah. Yeah, we're really spoiled today with all the unlimited free calling we have. That's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Will's almost out of time and almost out of luck. He even says, uh, what's the use? It's too late anyway. And then this was another nicely framed shot because there's a bottle of carbon tetrachloride on the shelf and it's in the foreground. And if you look at it, the label even says it's the Hatfield Four Corners hardware store's local brand. I mean, (laughs) I didn't know that you could (laughs) get carbon tetrachloride in the hardware store, but apparently 1997 uh, Earth, you can. Not only do they sell it, but they sell it directly behind the front cashier where stores sell their most valuable items like cigarettes. But the Amish don't smoke. So it's the ever-popular carbon tetrachloride instead, which they probably use as an inhalant. (laughs) I guess he's thinking if he can't get a hold of Alpha Control, at least he can help his family from starving back on pre-planets. So he grabs the bottle of carbon tet and he says he wants to buy it. And the proprietor says, wait a minute, Sonny, that'll be 89 cents. And of course, Will only has interstellar credits with him, but he, he tries to charge it to John Robinson's account, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, on pre-planets road. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're coming to the end of the act now, and Will dashes out before the store owner can stop him, but he runs right into Sheriff Baxendale. The sheriff thinks he knows what's going on, but the shopkeeper is confused by all this talk of pre-Planus Street. The sheriff also mentions that that local reporter, Lacey, is trying to check out Will's crazy story, even though he thinks it's a waste of time. He takes the bottle of carbon tet from Will's hand and gives it to the proprietor. Will says it doesn't matter now. If he's not back on top of that roof by 1,200 hours, he won't be able to take it back anyway. Anyway, now this was an, an interesting little backstory. When CBS read the draft script, they had an issue with Will acting like a thief in the scene, and they wanted it changed. But for some reason, Tony Wilson ignored that request, and this would come back to bite them when the network watched a rough cut of the episode on the 17th of December. Even though Will doesn't succeed in stealing the bottle, they let it be known that it couldn't be shown as is. And since there was no time to reshoot the scene, and if it was left out, later action in the story wouldn't make sense. The producers were able 
able to reach a hasty compromise with CBS. They said, we'll remove the line spoken by the proprietor to the sheriff when he said he stole it. So they took that out. And for some reason, CBS went along with it. Yeah, I kind of felt like uh, they were inferring that maybe the guy would still get paid because once Alpha Control comes and sees the photograph and realizes it's, it's actually Will Robinson, it's sort of like, well, you know, if he ran up a tab, you know, <laughs> we'll pay it. I, I guess I'm grasping for straws there. But yeah. it didn't well, seem it didn't strike me as that he was stealing because he was telling the truth. In fact, he actually gave the real address. Well, I think it's just interesting that they were that sensitive to the fact that they couldn't have their, you know, a little boy being shown stealing something, even though his whole family's life is depending on getting this. That's, uh, you know, that's... Yeah, there may be some truth to this thing that, you know, the the culture has dragged the actual population down with it because when they were treating people respectfully and honest, you had a population that was respectful and honest. But now when you turn on TV, you kind of get what you see, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Art imitates life or life imitates art. I'm not sure which it is. Maybe a little both. So as we go to final break, the sheriff says he's taking Will back over to Aunt Clara's until they can find out what to do with him. And he shuffles Will along. Somewhere on Earth, there's a familiar driveway and a tranquil backyard. There's a warm fireside chair. There are gifts around a tree and an orthopedic bed. Somewhere on Earth, there's a table spread of gourmet food and wines fit for a king. There are rich great aunts. There are card-counting cousins and comfortable hotels. Somewhere on Earth, there are green hills, there are blue skies, and plants that don't bite. There is peace, there is quiet, and hot showers that never run dry. Tauron Matter Transfer Line, because somewhere on Earth, there's home. When we return to start the final act, Will is pacing in Davy's room looking for a way to escape, but he's locked in. Then there's a knock on the door. It's Aunt Clara bringing him lunch. Will's frustrated and not interested in eating at all. And Clara's very sympathetic, but she still hasn't totally bought Will's fantastic story. It's just so difficult for her to understand. In a real act of kindness, she even offers to take him in. And he just wants to make it back to the roof of the feed store by noon, so he doesn't miss that beam back to Preplanus. I thought Clara was being as gentle and understanding as possible, but it's not doing anything to comfort Will. He reacts angrily at the suggestion of staying there. All he's worried about is getting back or else he'll never see his family again. But he's starting to lose hope because the last thing we see in this little scene is he's saying, that's no good. That's no good. No one understands. Yeah, he's actually being rather rude and mean to Aunt Clara. But, you know, considering that she's basically, for all practical purposes, about to turn him into an orphan, you can understand why he would act that way. Oh, sure. Yeah. Then we cut back to Dr. Smith on Preplanus, and he's still enjoying his alone time, lording over his favorite servant companion, the robot. And he wants to hear a brief but compelling statement on the character of one Zachary Smith. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, the robot is back to his must return to the MTU mantra, which angers Smith. And when he tries to pull his power pack this time, the robot defends himself with some warning bolts from his electrical claws. Finally. The, finally, exactly. And that's, this causes Smith to pause, but then he tries again. So the robot finally decides to get medieval with Smith and really issues some warning shots of electricity. And then he makes his dash. He escapes to get back to that MTU. And he's moving at a pretty brisk clip. Yeah, you're cheering him on because, you know, you're you're sitting there thinking, no, please. I mean, it's almost noon and you're holding him up. And I don't think, you know, Smith believed him, of course. He couldn't be that selfish to where no. he wants Will not to come back. No. But it's just this ongoing thing that nobody believes Will and it's just so frustrating. Yeah, and it's really admirable that the robot is is really sticking to his guns yeah. here. Yeah, the robot's the only one that believes Will. But, of course, he's the one who sent him, so why wouldn't he? Yeah. Smith, though, is chasing after the robot, ordering him to stop. And then we see the family is back on the search for Will. And John spots the robot with his binoculars, his space binoculars. And he sees that Smith is lagging behind. And I thought this was kind of funny because it was clear to me that that footage was sped up. The robot is just zipping across at like 55 miles per hour with his arms waving. And Dr. Smith is sort of haltingly following behind him. It kind of reminded me of an old Keystone Cops movie. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're back on Earth and Davy drops by his room and he knocks and Will says, who is it? It's Davy. Can I come in? (laughs) It's your room. So he comes in and they have a little talk and Davy is sympathetic and he wants wants to believe Will, and Will has a nice little line here. He says, when Alpha Control finds out you kept me here, I wouldn't be surprised that they put you away for life. (laughs) Yeah, you know, at first when he showed up and uh, wanted to help Will escape, I thought it was because he was jealous and didn't want another boy there to compete with his supply of pie or whatever, but it turned out to be a lot better than that, and, you know, he seemed like a pretty nice guy at that point, and pretty, very convincing, really. Oh, yeah, I thought that was a nice little scene. Davy says Will's story's pretty incredible, but he's starting to believe Will, or at least give him the benefit of the doubt. And they have that nice little chat, and he's asking about what's it like to be in space. And when he starts seeming to take him seriously, Will's attitude relaxes. So eventually, Davy agrees to help Will make it back to the roof in time for that beam me up Scotty moment. And so the two boys dash out of Aunt Clara's house before she can stop them. Now the race is on to get Will back to that same spot where he landed, and he does make it with just four minutes to spare. Davy's next move is to ask Will if there's enough room on that maser beam for just one more. I was just thinking, do, do you think it'd be okay with that metal transfer unit if, if I hitched a ride with you? I don't know, Davy. The robot's only programmed for me. Well, it was a crazy idea anyway. It wasn't crazy at all. The carbon tent! I can't go without the carbon tent! Well, I'll get it for you. Well, look, you just get on that roof. Davy barges into the hardware store and he pays for the bottle with a whole dollar. I'll take this bottle of carbon tetrachloride. There's your money. What about your change? I'll get it later. Davy comes back with a bottle and he tosses it up to Will. And... I got it, Will. I got it. Hurry up, Davy. It's a nice little exchange between the two boys. They they become quick friends and. Maybe I'll get up there someday and see you. Here, you better take this. Will drops that plaid Cody borrowed back down to Davy. You can thank your Aunt Clara. She was nice, really. And you can thank Miss Roof at the boys' home. And if you ever get that sheriff or anybody to contact Alpha Control, tell them how I got here and how I had to get back. Maybe they'll send out a rescue ship. Well, I'll do the best I can, Will. Bye, Davy. Merry Christmas. Sure, and a Happy New Year. 
Then there's just a quick little cut to pre-planus and that Tauron matter transfer machine is starting to fire up, almost literally. And that's causing a little concern. Yeah, because it looks like it's about to explode. Right. Is it going to explode before he can get back? And Will readies himself for liftoff. He's watching the skies for that beam of light, and he's watching his watch as well. And for a second, I started wondering, is he really going to be stranded, or is he going to make it back? Because we don't see any sign of the beam at first. Yeah, this is a real nice touch of suspense. And you not only that have that, you have a posse converging on him, you know? So... Will, will, will make it. You know, you don't know. You don't know. And uh, the whole town, like you say, is converging on him. And he's holding that precious bottle of carbon tet. And he's perched up on that roof waiting for his ride. Before they can haul him down, we hear that familiar matter transfer sound effect. And that beam shoots down from the sky right on the spot where he's standing. And it returns him to outer space before anyone can stop him. There's a little bit of comedy here again because Will's departure ends the same way his arrival began with a little pile of snow falling off the roof and this time it falls on Davy and the sheriff and that did cause me to smile because the old sheriff isn't amused at all by being dumped on and he says where is he Davy replies up there pointing to the sky as the beam disappears into the heavens along with Will Robinson. And I wanted to ask you, did you get the impression that the other adults actually saw the beam? Couldn't really tell if they really got it or not. Well, unless it was, uh, you know, like the old 70s song, they were blinded by the light. I don't don't see how they could not have seen it. But even if they hadn't seen it, I mean, they saw the kid on the roof and he disappeared, you know. Right. Right. So there wasn't any place for him to go. And, you know, if they if they thought that he had jumped down, you would have thought they would have run around the building to find him. But it, it was pretty clear to me that they thought he had disappeared right before their eyes. I agree with that. I just wasn't quite sure if they actually saw the beam. But <laughs> there's one final little bit of irony to come because the reporter, Lacey, says to the sheriff, Alpha Control is going to be here in an hour. What do I tell them? <laughs> Yeah, and then he says something like, tell them anything, and just turns and walks away. Yeah, and that's the last scene we see of that snowy Vermont town in this episode, because next we're back with the robot trying to fulfill his prime directive and bring Will Robinson safely back from Earth. There's still a second of suspense left because that Torah machine is sparking, and it appears to be on the verge of a full meltdown. We have to wonder, is it going to keep functioning long enough to reunite our little castaway with his family, but they don't hold us in suspense too long. That beam of light drops down and delivers a smiling Will back on the target pad from where he left, complete with a little bottle of carbon tetrachloride. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. And no sooner does he land than Don and the rest of the Robinsons appear, and it's a happy reunion. And everybody is happy to see him, and they wonder where he's been. But before he can answer, Judy asks what's happening to the transfer machine. And the robot says, signal overload. And John asks, what signal? Will says, the one that brought me back from Earth. Earth? Yeah, they still don't believe any of this because they didn't see him materialize. They just see that he's there now. Yeah, but he tells them the whole story. He was in a place called Hatfield Four Corners, and he even says something like, boy, are they behind the time? So he actually acknowledges what we've all been noticing, you know, that the town's really out of place and out of time there. And he even says, well, gosh, they thought I was some kind of nut. I kept telling them I needed to call Alpha Control, but they wouldn't let me do it. Marines still doesn't believe him. She says, he's got to control his imagination or they're going to start thinking he's nuts. This is the thing I really liked about that story because Will has an ace. He 
has that bottle of carbon tet and it's complete with a label that says Hatfield Four Corners Hardware. And so that pretty much settles the issue right there. The question is answered. Yeah, you know, I, I think I mentioned before how on Sesame Street they had this blue elephant called the Snuffleupagus. And he would always leave the scene after t- visiting with the children. The children would say, oh, we want to show you the Snuffleupagus. But whenever they tried to show him, he was gone, you know, and it was funny at first. But then it, it got to be nightmarish because, you know, it felt like the adults were gaslighting the kids, accusing them of basically line or being crazy. And Mm. PBS eventually decided to end the charade because they worried that it was teaching kids not to report sexual abuse or other things that they thought that their parents wouldn't believe. So, you know, I'm just tremendously relieved that finally they believed Will, you know, and it was right there in their face and they couldn't deny it. They had that label. They had that tetrachloride, whatever it is, chemical. And, uh, you know, that was more important than the fact that now they were going to be able to eat is that now they're going to be able to believe them. But, you know, this is a trope that's used in a lot of TV. TV shows and movies, the the people won't believe you. A lot of times they, they never get the satisfaction of being able to prove what they saw. I think the X-Files was famous for this in a lot of episodes, you know. I wanted to give kudos to Peter Packer for that part of the script, but it turns out that yet again, this was Erwin Allen's addition to the story. All these little things that he added in, it's, to me, it's really hard to imagine the episode would have been as good without those things. So I think Erwin Allen really made the difference here in this story. Yeah, and I'm also very relieved that back home, Home, they had to conclude that he was there, you know, because the, the one ace in the hole he had there was that they had his photograph, okay? So not only did they have these witnesses that he was on top of the roof and he disappeared, which can be faked, and they could have lied, you know, they could have just been trying to put Hatfield Four Corners on the map with Alpha Control and get their name in the paper, but they had the photograph yep. of Will Robinson, and that, my friend, is proof. Yes, As the story draws to a close, Dr. Smith does pipe up at this point to say, is it possible that he's telling the truth? And no one answers Smith's rhetorical question because he and the robot just walk away. And the last thing we see is the Toron machine self-destruct. So I guess no one else is going to be tempted to make a return from outer space again, eh, Kurt? Yeah, they had to destroy that exit if they wanted to continue the series, because otherwise they would all go home. Exactly. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, what did you think about Return from Outer Space? Oh, I loved it. There were no aliens or monsters, but that's one of the things that made it really unique. Uh, Most of it all all occurs on Earth, except, you know, when they go back and forth uh, to pre-Planus. But that adds tension when you see what's going on back at pre-Planus. You know, Mm -hmm. Smith is basically trying to uh, sabotage Will, uh, hopefully unintentionally, from ever coming back. So it had a completely different feel than all the other Lost in Space episodes that we've seen today. It created a lot of tension. And I can only imagine what the kids at school would have had to say the next day it aired, except for the fact that it was Christmas time, so they were probably not at school the next day or next week or whatever. But it was top shelf in every every regard. And it was impressive to think that uh, Will Robinson was able to carry off that entire episode basically as the, the main character. This is really one of my favorite Lost in Space stories for all the things you just said. And I, and I even like the sentimental holiday elements. And I think Bill Mummy did such a nice job of acting in this episode, and he he really sold that rising level of frustration, and then even that part where he started to feel like he was giving in to defeat. I thought he did a really good job in that. The other part that I liked is, even though he didn't get in contact with Alpha Control, he did bring back that carbon tet, and that's something that they needed to survive. So you'll see a lot of people fixate on the stuff we talked about, about Hatfield Four Corners was portrayed like, you know, way out of time for 1997, but I'm just chalking that 
add up to the fact that they're trying to give you that it's a wonderful life vibe and it certainly did so oh and plus i mean you know we have to fall back on the reality of what was going on which is if you wanted it perfect they couldn't do it so there's no episode at all hey i'll take the story and the anachronisms in little four points if that's what it takes and that's kind of where i come on a lot of these things you know whether the monster's scary or not uh or some of these little things what the writing has to offer and what the story concept has to offer it makes it worth it even though there's these little shortcomings that basically deal with budget or what was available or timing or schedule i don't know there's just something that delights the sentimental side of me or that this and i know it's designed for the holiday time of year but i i always enjoy watching it no matter what the season i've seen it so many times i know everything's going to happen but it still gets a smile on my face i think mark cushman put it well about this when he says it's comfort food for the mind and soul yeah can you think of any better place to spend christmas than vermont you know i mean that's right out of bing crosby yes i think i agree with that all right Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode, and we're going to go into it in more detail next time. We see the robot is digging a trench with Dr. Smith and Will watching him. The the robot completes his task, but then Dr. Smith issues further orders, which the robot computes and understands, and the work continues. And Smith is very satisfied with this kind of work, the kind that he doesn't have to do. (laughs) Anyway, he waxes on to Will about how wonderful it is that man has freed himself from toil. Will pipes up with a little bit about how Dad says it's machines do too much for us already. There's some more of that. Uh, Amish, Amish. <laughs> yeah. But why walk when it's so much easier to ride? Mm. But then John and Don show up, and so Smith quickly grabs the shovel out of the robot's claw and proceeds to put on quite a show for the men, and they're surprised and impressed. This is totally uncharacteristic for Smith, and Don even says, I see it, but I don't believe it. Go away, Major. You irk me. <laughs> well, they do go away. They leave him to get some pipes for the irrigation ditch he's working on. As soon as they're out of sight, Smith throws the shovel down. He dusts off his hands and returns to his formerly relaxed state. <laughs> and Will is bothered by all this. You fibbed. You made them think you were working hard when, in reality, he was hardly working. And Smith, of course, is the master of spinning little green lies. And he explains, oh, I didn't lie. I never claimed that I had done the work. They just made that assumption. He starts to elaborate more, but all of a sudden the wind starts to blow and there's this strange sound. <laughs> Dr. Smith seems to go into a sort of a trance. Uh Uh-oh, Dr. Smith says in a strange voice. Out of the way, I'm being summoned. Mm. And he starts to walk off with this wide-eyed expression. Will follows Smith through the woods to a strange set of three glass cages. Smith proceeds to walk into one of the glass cages, and the door closes on him before Will can do anything to help. But then a loud growl (laughs) announces the arrival of a strange, hairy, horned beast with glowing eyes approaching. And Will has to hightail it out of there before he gets eaten. And suddenly we go to freeze frame. As we're told, the story has to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Ooh, I can't wait to see how Smith gets out of this one, Kurt. Yes, Smith under glass. That should be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 16 of Lost in Space, The Keeper, part one. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. 
please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.